39. Relaxed hands to form a seat. They stumbled along that snowy mile to the castle, supporting the stranger between them as best they could. By the time they had reached the lodge, both Jack and Ralph were thoroughly exhausted with their exertions, but here help was at hand. The Earl himself was there, and with him quite a band of grooms and keepers, all about to start in different directions, to look for the young heir. The old man's gratitude to the young clerks was simply unbounded. He insisted on their spending the night at the castle, and here, dressed in some of the young air suits, they sat down to what Jack afterwards described as a Lord Mayor's banquet, and, later on, in the drawing room, Lady Ravens near herself, with tears in her eyes, thanked them warmly for saving her son, and told them they should never forget what they had done. The Earl himself drove the lads to the station next morning so they did not miss the Christmas dinner with their friends. After all, a float on the daughter bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China, continued from page 367, chapter XX. In the room in which the fugitives now found themselves, there were several garments hanging. Let us change our clothes, Charlie whispered, it will be a splendid disguise. Ping Wang's face beamed. He pulled off his coat and trousers and donned in their place a dirty jacket and a pair of ragged knickerbockers. Then, taking off his beehive, he wound round his head the yellow scarf of the boxers. Charlie and Fred hastened to follow his example. Ping Wong tied their boxer cloths around their heads, and then looked at them with interest. Splendid, he declared. And now we must be off in case any of the people return. They have gone, he added, after listening for a few minutes. He opened the door, a passerby spoke to him, and he answered cheerfully, making some remark which caused the man to laugh heartily as he continued his journey. Come on, Ping Wan whispered, when the man had passed out of sight, and stepped into the street, followed by Charlie and Fred. No one penetrated their disguise as they hurried along the streets. One man informed Ping Wan that the three foreigners had been killed, they had taken refuge in a house and the mob had thereupon set light to it. He pointed to the distant flames. Ping Wan was sorry for the men who had been mistaken for them, if they were really in the burnt house, but could not help feeling relieved at the thought that now the mob had wreaked its vengeance it would probably disperse for the night. When we turn the next corner we shall be facing the gates, Ping Wan said after a short walk, and Charlie and Fred heard the news with thankfulness. They were as determined as ever to recover their friend's wealth before quitting China but they realized that it would be folly to make another attempt to do so while the boxers were stirring up the people. Their idea was to return to Hong Kong and remain there until the anti-foreign feeling had grown less strong. Ping Wan was the first to reach the corner. To the astonishment of his friends he stopped short, with an exclamation of surprise. Charlie and Fred were at his side in a moment and saw at once the cause of his astonishment the town gates were closed. The surprise which they showed on seeing that the gates were closed did not cause any comment or notice among the people standing near, for they too had been surprised and annoyed by the same thing. Chin Chu had given the order for the gates to be shut, and the soldiers dared not open them until they received from him a command to that effect. After a time the crowd began to disperse, some of the people wandering off to find lodgings for the night, and others sitting down by the roadside in the hope that, before long, the gates would be thrown open. Among the latter were the pages and Ping Wang. They found a dark corner, and sat there almost entirely hidden from passers-by. Ping Wang sat in front of his friends, so that if anyone did peer into their corner he would see him, 
and conclude that his companions were Chinamen. A long silence was at last broken by the shouts of an advancing mob. They've discovered their mistake, Charlie declared, and are continuing the search for us. Don't talk, King Wang said, and once more they became silent, listening eagerly to distinguish what the mob was shouting. In a few minutes their suspicions were confirmed, for the cry which burst from hundreds of throats was one that there was no need Ping Wang to translate Charlie and Fred understood only too well what it meant. Killed the foreigners. Near a reach moment came the crowd, every man uttering the same cry. Soon it came in sight. At the head of the mob was Chin Chu in his palanquin, wearing the yellow headcloth of the boxers. They are boxers, Ping Wang whispered, and evidently they have no idea that we are alive. This was welcome news to Charlie and Fred, and remembering that they two were members of the Boxers Society, they watched the crowd with great interest. Every boxer wore his yellow headcloth, and carried a weapon of some sort. A few only had rifles, the remainder being armed with swords, knives, bows and arrows, and sticks. When the boxers had arrived at the town gates, Chinchu addressed his followers from his palanquin. He declared that the foreigners had come to the Middle Kingdom for the sole purpose of taking their country, and that, therefore, it was necessary to kill them all at once. If any were permitted to escape, they would return to their own land, and come back with many more. Then he declared that the boxers would avenge all the cruelties which he said had been enacted by the foreigners, and finished up with the statement that the boxers could not be wounded. Bullets would glide off their skin without making a scar, and swords spears, and knives would make no impression. Chin Chu saw that the people had doubts about the truth of his last assertion, and beckoned two of his officers to approach him. He talked with them for a few moments, and then declared, in a loud voice, Now you shall see that nothing can harm the men who wear yellow headcloths. As he spoke six boxers advanced, and stood with their backs to the town gates. Then twelve of the soldiers marched forward with their rifles at the trail and halted about twenty yards in front of them. At the word of command they loaded their rifles and raised them to their shoulders. An instant later they fired a volley at the six boxers. But, to the astonishment of the onlookers, not one of the men was injured. They used blank cartridges. Fred declared, it was smart of Chinchu. Charlie declared, and Fred and Ping Wang agreed with him. For not one Chinaman in a thousand knows that there are such things as blank cartridges. The crowd was delighted with this miracle, and the boxers themselves became wild with joy. They waved their weapons about, and shouted to be led against the enemy at once. Their desire was granted. The gates were thrown open, and the boxers marched out of the town. Come on, King Wang said. When the boxers began to move forward, we will march out with them. They slipped into the road, and joined the tail of the boxers boldly brandishing the knives that they had with them in imitation of the Chinamen's actions. Ping Wang shouted as loudly as any man, and shook his fist fiercely at an imaginary enemy. Keep your eye on me, he whispered to Charlie when they had marched about a mile. We will bolt soon. Charlie saw that it would not be a difficult thing to escape from the rabble army. Four men straggled away right and left, just as they felt inclined. The officers walked in front and beyond looking round occasionally to see that the mob was following, kept no further watch on them. Before long Ping Wang halted to rearrange his headcloth. Charlie and Fred turned, and stood looking at him as if they were waiting for him to finish and march on. Their action was very natural, and the few men who had been marching behind them passed on without a remark. 
Ping Wang continued to fumble about with his headcloth until the last of the boxers were out of sight. Then he said, Now's our time, and quitted the track. The bushes, which grew thickly along the roadside, afforded ample cover if they needed it. We must hurry through this undergrowth without being seen, and get well ahead of the boxers, said Ping Wang, then we will rejoin the track and run forward at full speed. They proceeded cautiously, but traveled quick enough to gain on the boxers. We are about level with the middle of the mob, Ping Wang declared some minutes later. We must get a good half mile ahead of them before we rejoin the track. As Ping Wang finished speaking, Fred, who had looked behind him, exclaimed, anxiously, there's someone following us. Charlie and Ping Wang stopped short, and, looking in the direction indicated by Fred, saw a dark figure struggling through the bushes after them. Let us wait and tackle him, Charlie suggested, but Ping Wang objected firmly to that proposal. There may be other fellows following him, he added and a shout from any one of them would bring the mob rushing over here in a moment. The best thing that we can do is to hurry on as quickly as possible. Come along, then, Charlie said, and started running. They ran a little more than a mile. They soon left the boxers behind, but the man whom they were trying to avoid still pursued them. He has gained on us, Charlie declared, and Fred and Ping Wong could not deny it. We must run faster, Ping Wong said, but... As he was panting for breath, Charlie and Fred felt sure that they would not get rid of their pursuer by running. He is alone, Fred declared, let's stop and see what he wants. We may be certain that he hasn't any firearms with him, for if he had he would have had a shot at us long before this. Ping Wong, however, did not agree, he preferred to keep on running, but he sadly overrated his running powers, and before they had gone another hundred yards he had to stop and gasp for breath. The pursuer was now approaching them rapidly, so Charlie and Fred grasped their knives and waited for him. He increased his speed, and, as he drew nearer, they saw that he was wearing the yellow headcloth of the boxers. Continued on page 378, afloat on the Daughter Bank, a story of adventure on the North Sea and in China. Continued from page 375, chapter XXI, when the man was within 20 yards of the fugitives. He caught sight of their knives, and, stopping suddenly, exclaimed in pidgin English, What for knives, my plenty good Christian man, my no knives, no shooty gun, no nothing. As he spoke, he held up his hands to show that he was unarmed, and, with perfect confidence in their honor, advanced in that fashion. Who are you? Charlie asked, as the thin, wizened, but lively little Chinaman stood before them. Number one cook. Wally good cook for Miss Iron Oli Man. What for want he catchy us? Fred inquired. English seaman to key to Miss Iron Oli. How you savvy we English seaman? English seaman pigtail plenty good. Number one cook explained. But added the unflattering information that English seaman no can hide Wally much funny nose. Wally much funny eyes. Wally much funny mouth. Ping Wong, having recovered his breath, took up the conversation. Charlie and Fred meanwhile keeping a sharp lookout for boxers, when they had walked quickly about a quarter of a mile, Ping Wang brought his conversation in Chinese to a close. This man says, he informed the pages, that he is employed at the mission station for which we are bound. He had been sent up country by the missionaries on business, and was returning through Kwangan when he saw the anti-foreign placard. He did the same thing as we did hurry to the gates but did not reach them until after they were closed. Being hungry, he went back to get some food, 
and on his way to the shop he met a sleepy boxer, who had apparently just come from an opium den. Number one said to himself, I will have that headcloth, and he took it, giving the boxer his own head instead. Then, after a while, he made his way to the gates, arriving there just as the boxers were marching out. He declares that he knew that both of you were Englishmen the moment he saw you. He kept his eyes on us, and decided to join us. Does he think that the rising will spread? Charlie asked. He is sure it will, and he means to urge Barton and his friends to leave the country as quickly as possible. Being now about half a mile ahead of the boxers, the two Englishmen and the two Chinamen made their way back to the track, and, after walking quickly for another hour, arrived at the gates of Su Ching, which they had hoped not to re-enter until they brought with them Ping Wang's treasure. The gates were open, but the soldiers who guarded the entrance to the town had thrown off their usual air of apathy, and were questioning eagerly every man who came from the direction of Kwangan. On seeing four boxers approaching, they hurried forward to meet them. Are the boxers coming quickly to kill the foreigners? They asked. Excitedly, they are. Ping Wang answered. Listen and you will hear them shouting. The noise of the advancing mob reached them as a faint, buzzing sound but loud enough to convince the soldiers that the boxers were really coming. They were anxious to ask Ping Wang and his companions more questions, but Ping Wang cut short their questions. We bear a message, he declared, and we must deliver it at once. We have run quickly, for we did not carry rifles, but now that we have finished running, give us rifles, in case we meet any foreigners. To the soldiers this request appeared to be a perfectly reasonable one, and, Knowing that the Mandarin and other town officials sympathized with the boxers, they took from the armory, which was close by, four Snyder rifles, and handed them out to Ping Wang, with ammunition. Feeling safe once more, Ping Wang and his friends hurried off in the direction of the Mandarin's house, but, as soon as they got out of sight of the soldiers, number one exclaimed, this way welly much more quick, and turned up a narrow side street. The pages and Ping Wang followed him and in about three minutes they arrived at the wall of the mission station, which they saw was already placarded with anti-foreign manifestos. They rang the bell, but some minutes passed, and the gate was not opened. They rang again, loudly, and a minute later they heard Barton inquire, in Chinese, who they were. Miss Ironales, number one answered, quite convinced that Charlie and Fred were missionaries. Where from? Barton asked for one of his native servants had already turned traitor, and he was now very cautious. It's all right, Mr. Barton, Charlie sang out. We are the pages, Ping Wang, and your number one cook. That's splendid, Barton declared, and, although they could not see him, they knew by his voice that their arrival was welcome. Wait a moment, he continued, the gate is barricaded, but I will lower a ladder to you. Here you are, he called down a minute later and on looking up they saw him lowering from the top of the wall a long bamboo ladder. When it touched the ground they planted it firmly. You go first, number one, Charlie said, in a tone that showed he meant to be obeyed. Well he good, number one replied, and went up the ladder as nimbly as if it were his usual way of entering the mission station. Fred followed number one, and Charlie asked to be the last, but Ping Wang objected. Hurry up, Barton sang out, and Ping Wang, Seeing that Charlie was determined to be the last man up, climbed the ladder, just as he reached the top, and as Charlie planted his foot on the lowest rung, three men, with knives in their hands, came running up, 
and Charlie wasn't aware of his danger, but Fred saw the scoundrels, and slipping a cartridge into the breech of his rifle he took aim, fired, and shot the foremost man, the other two, who had not expected any danger, turned about and fled in terror, Fred, Charlie said, when he had climbed over the wall, you saved my life, then he turned to Barton, I see that you are prepared for the boxers, he said, we were afraid that we shouldn't get here in time to warn you of their approach, are they on their way, then, they will be here in ten minutes at the latest, Barton sighed, I had been hoping, he said, that the Empress Dowager would have had the boxers suppressed before they would be able to reach here, I am afraid, however, that she is secretly encouraging them, it is a great sorrow to my colleagues and myself to find ourselves arming against the people among whom we have lived on friendly terms for some years, however, we must protect our women and children, since you left us, eight men, five women, and four children have joined us, some of them have suffered terribly in their flight from the boxers, their own mission stations have been destroyed, and many of their fellow missionaries were murdered, consequently we may have to fight, how many European men have you, and what weapons, Fred asked, thirteen, counting you and your brother, and we have eight rifles and five revolvers, that is not including your Snyders, but what about provisions, Charlie asked, I have got a good stock, and I think we can stand a month's siege, of course it won't last quite so long now you are here, the other missionaries now joined them, in answer to Barton's summons, the majority were young men, but two were middle-aged, and one a grey-bearded old gentleman, each had his rifle or revolver, and, although they did not wish to be forced to fight, they had the determined looks of men who knew that their cause was a good one, and were prepared to die in its defense, their positions at the wall had been settled some hours before, but the arrival of the pages, Ping Wang, and number one made a fresh arrangement necessary, I will post you above the gate, with Ping Wang, and number one, as you call him, Barton said to Fred, adding, I will make Charlie my lieutenant, that won't do, Charlie declared, I know nothing about military matters, but Fred does, he's a volunteer, and a jolly good shot into the bargain, make him your lieutenant, very well, then you go over the gate, Charlie took up his position on a platform built over the gateway, on the inner side of the wall, King One was on his right, and number one on his left, I came to the conclusion, Barton said, as he showed Fred the defenses, that it would be risky to make loopholes in the wall, in case, after a time, we should be unable to place a man at each, therefore we built those platforms, the platforms were built at intervals around the wall, each having room for six or seven men, the defenders would have to shoot over the top of the wall, but cover had been provided for them by sandbags fixed securely along the ridge, our women workers made those sandbags, Barton remarked, they used tablecloths, rugs, curtains, and even some of their own dresses, they have been a great help to us, by the by, do your colleagues know how to handle their rifles, Fred inquired, Mr. Wilkins, that old gentleman with the gray beard, was a good shop forty years ago, but from the time he first left England, until yesterday, he hadn't touched a rifle, however, he was practicing yesterday and today, and I have no doubt that he will do well. My other colleagues had never handled a rifle in their lives until this morning, when I gave them a little instruction. I was a member of the Oxford University Corps. We ought to make a good defense then, said Fred, but we must keep a sharp eye on the ammunition. 
and see that it isn't wasted. That reminds me that my man got a fine lean effort and a large box of ammunition. They were sold to him at a low price by a boatman who, I suspect, had stolen them at one of the treaty ports. As the rifle was strange to me I held it back until I had time to learn how to fill the magazine. Would you like to have it? I should. Very much. They hurried to the veranda of the house where the lean effort and ammunition lay. Fred picked up the rifle and, after examining it closely, recognized it as the very one which he had used with good effect against the river pirates. He was about to tell Barton of his discovery when loud shouts from the town made known to them that the boxers had arrived. Fred pulled off his skull cap, filled it with cartridges, and followed Barton down the steps and up onto the platform, where Charlie, Ping Wong, and number one were stationed, continued on page 386, toys from the streets, who does not know the street toy man, all made to work, here you are, sir, a real motor car for a penny, the wonderful jumping frog, Cheapside and Ludgate Hill, and many less busy parts of London, ring with such cries for a month before Christmas, all the year round the hawkers are standing patiently on the curbstone with their wonderful penriths, but it is at Christmas time that they do most business. Some children are fortunate enough to be taken by their parents to see the streets at Christmas time, and sometimes they are allowed to buy some of the pretty things for themselves, but there are many others not so fortunate, who can only look on wistfully, and others again who are not rich enough or, perhaps, to ill even to go and look at the sights. Poor men and women, who cannot really afford even a penny, find in the hawkers where's the cheapest market, and many a bare, cold home is brightened at Christmas by one or two of the little toys that cost so little, but bring so much happiness. These toys have a wonderful history of their own. Do you know that when you have one of them in your hand, you may be holding what has come thousands of miles over sea and land from the hands of other children in distant countries? Whole families make a living by manufacturing these toys. The material wood, paper, tinsel, wire, or whatnot is given out at the factory and the worker takes it home. There everyone is busy, one cutting out pieces of paper of a given shape, one whittling pieces of wood to fit together, one gumming up the various parts, till the whole toy is finished and added to a growing pile. Nearly every civilized country has such workers Austria, Germany, France, America, Japan, and England, and the toys in the end travel mile after mile in great ships and trains, to be sold in the streets for such a little sum. Now think how some of these are made. Most of those which require gumming or fitting together are the work of man's hands alone. The burn cage and dog musical box in the illustration are of this kind. In the inside of the box under the dog is a little cocked wheel, which, when the handle is turned, rubs against pieces of metal and produces the musical sounds. The bird's song, or rather, croak, is caused by air rushing through a sort of parchment tissue when the floor of the cage is compressed. The train. Carmen, cart, and trailer are made almost entirely by means of molds, though some parts have to be fitted together by hand. First of all, a model is made in wax or clay, or some other substance. Then a cast is taken of it in plaster of Paris. Then a double mold into pieces is made from the plaster cast, and into these molds liquid metal and alloy mainly composed of lead is run, and left to cool. All these five toys have wheels that move. They are electro-gilt that island the gilding is fixed on them by means of a bath through which an electric current passes. The other toys in the illustration are made mainly by hand, though parts have to be cast in molds or cut by machinery. 
the monkey bicyclist is handmade, his body is composed of wool and wire, the weight hanging down under the string keeps him perfectly balanced, and as the string is raised or lowered he runs up and down more easily than a good many human bicyclists, continued on page 389, the Chinese and the differences in general appearance of the men of various races are most striking, no one could mistake a Chinaman for a North American Indian, or a Negro for a Malay or a Maori. Not only are these men of various races different in outward appearance, but they have also minds of different characters, and seem naturally fitted for different kinds of work. The Chinaman has his own special fields of labor. He is a great trader with the countries near home, and sends out many junks to the East Indies, the Malay Islands, and the South Sea Islands, to collect edible birds' nests, tripang, ornamental woods, pearls, pearl shells, tortoise shell and the skins of birds of paradise, at Singapore, there are hundreds of Chinese shopkeepers, who sell all kinds of miscellaneous articles, such as pen knives, cotton thread, writing paper, gunpowder, and corkscrews, often at a price which would be considered cheap even in England, but it is when the Chinaman settles in some American or Australian town that his special abilities are best seen, he is surrounded and outnumbered by Englishmen and Americans, and is entirely under their government, and yet there are some kinds of work which he can do so well and so cheaply that no European can compete with him. He is an excellent gardener in a small way, and if he can obtain only a very little plot of ground, he will cultivate it so constantly and so carefully that he will be able to maintain himself in comfort with the money which he obtains from the sale of his vegetables and fruits. Many gardens belonging to Chinamen are to be seen on the outskirts of the cities of Australia and New Zealand and early in the morning the Chinamen bought their products through the streets. The Chinaman is equally good as a laundryman, and in some cities the Chinese colonists do the whole of the laundry work. In San Francisco, where there are thousands of Chinese, all the washing is performed by them. They work in the open air, just as the English and Scotch women used to do in their public washing grounds, standing in the water rubbing and wringing their clothes. They have a curious practice in ironing of spraying the linen with water through their mouths. They do the work very thoroughly, and at the same time cheaply. A Chinaman will live very comfortably on 40 pounds a year, and, as he is an almost incessant worker, he can make sufficient money for his needs by work which is very poorly paid from an Englishman's point of view. A busy world. What a busy world is this. Everything I view has some task it must not miss something it must do. There is nothing idle stands. All things work with head or hands, all day long the busy sun runneth through the skies, and its work is never done till the stars arise, then it goes to other lands, nor one moment idle stands, in this world where all things work, I must busy be, there are tasks I must not shirk, duty set for me, and since nothing idle stands, I must work with head or hands, a hundred years ago, true tales of the year 1805, VII, the convict. It was the last day of the winter assize, in the year 1805, and a long row of prisoners stood in the dock of the court to receive the sentence of death. Sixteen men to be hanged. It seems quite incredible now. But a hundred years ago the death sentence was given indiscriminately for offenses of all sorts, some so trivial as hardly to deserve the name. For instance, the man of sixty, who stood first in the dock, had snatched a ham from a shop door to take to some starving children at home, and the country lad of some eighteen years or less, 
at the other end of the row, had set fire to a rick it was an accident, it is true, but a quantity of hay had been burnt, the jury found him guilty, and he was to be hanged with the rest, poor lad, the judge's words fell on his ear like strokes of a heavy hammer, surely they could not be meant for him, it was but a few days ago that he had been a happy, careless lad, shouting and laughing over a bonfire in which he and some friends were to roast potatoes, a high wine got up suddenly, and some sparks from their fire were carried to a hayrick at some little distance, and at once there was a blaze, the other lad slunk away, terrified at the mishap, but this lad, wrecked on my name, ran up, and tried to stamp out the flames, and so was taken red-handed, as the angry farmer expressed it, and was there and then lodged in the county jail, and now he was to die, he sat in a corner of the dark underground room, dazed and miserable, whilst the men round him, sentenced like himself, were talking and laughing, and trying by these means to put away the thought of their fate, but Recton was stupefied with anguish, till at last merciful sleep overcame him, he was roused next morning by the jailer, who said, roughly enough, you've escaped the gallows this time, lad, a reprieve has come for you, am I free, can I go home, asked the lad eagerly, not understanding the man's words, the jailer burst out laughing, free, what are you thinking of, folks can't burn ricks, and be free, you are to be transported to Botany Bay for ten years, and then you will be free, the six months which Recton had to pass on the hulks at Sheerness among scenes of wickedness and brutality seemed afterwards like a bad dream, and the lad prayed oh, so earnestly, to be kept from the evil which surrounded him, then came the day when, chained to and two, he and his companions were marched through the streets and shipped on board the Neptune, as unsworthy a craft as ever sailed the ocean, but thought good enough for convicts, however, the Neptune did not sink, but she took nearly a year to reach her destination, and the convicts, stowed together in the hold, suffered torments from heat and thirst in the tropics, then smallpox broke out amongst them, and many died, the rest were more like skeletons than living men, when the Neptune at last cast anchor in Botany Bay, here the men had to work on government buildings, and at night were locked up in barracks, hardly more roomy or airy than the hold of the old Neptune, most of the convicts did as little work, and gave as much trouble as they dared, and nothing but fear of the overseer kept them from open mutiny, at last, finding the overseer alone one day, and for once unarmed, two or three of the worst convicts set upon him, and would have murdered him, if Recton had not stood by him and helped him till assistance came to overpower the mutineers, the overseer did not forget this act of Recton's, and next time one of the merchants came to the barracks to choose a servant from among the convicts as was then the custom, he recommended the lad for the coveted post. Now, indeed, Recton felt almost happy for the first, 